0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element
0: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. And if you download the app, you can listen anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show today, Jacqueline McLeod-Rogers. And she is here to talk about an article that she wrote in the conversation. It is entitled, Why We Must Embrace Geoengineering and Other Technologies to Stop the Climate Crisis. Now, Jacqueline is a professor and chair of the Department of Rhetoric, Writing, and Communications at the University of Winnipeg. And in her research, she examines. Marshall McLuhan's thinking on relation to current cultural practices and material artifacts, and she also uh, studies media and family so it's a pleasure to have uh, Jacqueline here to talk about her article and uh, I guess also to talk about Marshall McLuhan because she mentioned, she mentions it in the article and him i didn't think I was going to see Marshall McLuhan's in, the, in this article when I, I must admit when I first read it over about geoengineering but You know, there is a tie-in, and so it's a pleasure to have Jacqueline here with us on the show. Welcome, Jacqueline.
1: Thanks, David. And you found the part that interests me the most in some ways. I I mean, pressing is, of course, the application and the concern we all have. But why I come to it, or or why I think I have something that might be a bit interesting to say, has to do with grounding it. Hmm. It, it's, It's pretty interesting to think that some 50 to 60 years ago, McLuhan was already observing technologies and, and the the kind of um, the way it was changing our, our planet, our environment mm. and ourselves. Mm-hmm. And at, at that point he was making the argument uh, that we didn't really have such a thing as nature anymore.
2: Yeah,
1: And that for us to go forward, it, you know, if, if there was going to be either a dystopia, if we let everything go uh, with technology, simply taking, taking their course, I guess, in corporate Corporate engines running those technologies. What he kept asking for instead was a kind of mindful and uh, and managed program, so that we could, uh, in some ways, control what we had already unleashed, and that would be the technologies. So, what's pretty interesting to me is that, in some ways, McLuhan. When there's arguments for geoengineering, you can, in, in some ways, our Canadian theorist to give us a bedrock to think about how that could be sensible, how it's kind of inevitable that we may, may need technology for the safe, but how, how that move itself comes with certain kinds of dangers.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah. And we would need to, uh, t- two real claims he would make. One would be control those technologies. They're already there and, and they're already changing our lives and the environment. So s- somehow we have to step forward with craft and design and organize them. But his other huge argument was, you know, not really an answer, but the question of who is who's in charge, who will make these decisions. And, and one really important group in that decision making is the public. Right. Yeah. So he was huge on and, and that's that was what I was trying to urge with the argument was not so much that we embrace geoengineering somewhat a little irked by the, <laughs> the way that title sounds. It's more like. Embrace the idea. Let's Mm. let's begin to to work on that idea of understanding the media that we have Mm. or the technologies that we have. Yeah, understanding and getting the public involved.
0: Well, you just said something interesting there about understanding the media or the technologies that we have, and what you were just saying there about Marshall McLuhan and about what what he was saying. Uh, the word that popped into mind was responsibility. Instead of instead of just taking these at face value, instead of just taking these technologies that we we have and just uh, not thinking any further than what they are providing but but like you said and what he was saying is about taking that responsibility for it and understanding its use and remembering that it's it's in our hands to control
1: um yeah there, there's really strong appeals um particularly of all places in his playboy interview late 60s i think where he, where he's actually it actually um, ends up explaining a bit more fully his his concerns and his his future, his ideas about the future. But you're you're absolutely right. Uh, it's it's almost a kind of you 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 break it, you buy it. In some ways, we we you made it mm-hmm. that now it's your job. Right? You know, yeah, that's what he ends up saying. You can't just run away once you've started this. You know, you you pulled the pin on this grenade in a sense, mm-hmm. and now you've got to figure out how to right. how to manage um, the something that's it's already there in every part of the environment. It's already changed how mm-hmm. how we live and and how we think. But you know, the, the reckoning is is it, very wide. He's actually saying, even wake up and look at how you use your cell phone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's pretty pressing as well. But wake up and look at what you've done with um, all of these all of these forms of technology unleashed on the world, and and then realize that, that it's up to to the public. And um, I mean, <laughs> that's always a question when you say some benign consortium, uh, you know, and he was smart enough to kind of evade saying exactly who, uh, who, who will be able to manage this kind of power. You know since our our fate is kind of depending on it, but but that the point is get the publics involved, and even 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 went so far as to say that there could in some ways be a bit of a recursive thing so that that the publics can, through their use and through their their interests that they influence the group who are making decisions about what we carry through for um, engineering and design controls. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, you know what I remember about Marshall McLuhan, of course, is some of the phrases, you know, that he was famous for, like the medium is the message and his thoughts being so convoluted. It was kind of very difficult to, to get to the real meat of what he was trying to say because of the language that he used.
1: That was when he was kind of blowing everybody away in the, <laughs> the 60s and 70s with, with concepts that were so new. Mm. What I found was coming back to him now, the last 10 years I've been reading him. Um, he's got lots of company, so it's it's much easier to, d- to decipher what used to be called, you know, kind of opaque or mm. a strange visionary mm-hmm. kind of prose that was, you know, hard to fathom. Mm-hmm. It now plugs into so much of what we what we live. Mm.
0: And and so, in retrospect, then looking back and what you've rediscovered and, and found from what you've been reading on him and looking at the world now. Uh, what pops out or what started to pop out to you, you mentioned a couple of things there, but mm-hmm. what else has, has sort of uh, come to the fore for you?
1: Well, the, uh, one of the aphorisms that's huge, you mentioned what the one we often think about the medium is the message. And if you, I mean, if we, we unpack that, even that used to sound so puzzling, but when you think about it, it now makes great good sense. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, that it's not so much, um, what is being written but as soon as you start to deliver it via the screen via computers Mm -hmm. uh, it's influencing our expectations our values um what's being produced so so that in itself that kind of aphorism makes some sense uh, that that these powerful mediums that we have uh change you know we don't pick up a book anymore we don't go to a, a a set of mm. encyclopedias on the wall, we we immediately go to um, a computerized digital information system. So, 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 so much of, so much of how we, what, what, how we do things, what we value, uh, how we, how we make information and knowledge has to do with the medium that we're using. Mm. So there's that. But the other one uh, I think is most uh, Maybe the heart of McLuhan is that aphorism that is attributed to him. But if you check it out, it's hard to actually find him say it. But he says, he says very instant or similar. Uh, that is, we make our tools and they make us. Hmm. So that, that, that emphasis on the interactive. Yeah. yeah. The interactive nature that we don't make anything. You know, it used to you have this theory that seems so weird and wacky too. This idea that they're they're extensions of us. Mm. But when you really think about it, uh, you know, all, all the talk now in media that we're losing memory or that that we we, we don't um, that we don't uh, converse the same ways or remember things the same way. All of this would have to do with the technological assistance that we have that we're bringing on board. Mm.
0: Yes. You know, that's interesting because two things come to mind when you say that. One, just reading the article. And of course, anytime I read anything on the climate and climate crisis and what we're dealing with, is that I keep thinking indigenous people living light on the land that used to live in harmony with the planet, and they had it, you know, at least in terms of knowing how to live and survive on this planet and respect it. uh, That part of things was dead on um mm-hmm. the other thing that you just mentioned also is because indigenous cultures for the most part are very oral so they did use their memory they did use the practice of oral tradition to pass information down from one generation to the next
1: well there's some reckoning in there and I, it, because of the um you know clearly McLuhan wrote in a period before there was a as much awareness of Hmm. Reconciliation and the, the the value of listening to indigenous voices, hmm. but he doesn't romanticize indigeneity or uh, groups who have less technology. Uh, I was just summing through Understanding Media the other day and came across a passage and highlighted it, where it, it, yeah, it's a recognition that our, we've gained all this technological assistance. In some ways, ease. But um, I don't think there's any question. McLuhan would have said what was given Mm.
2: up—the
1: value of life, uh, Mm. a less technologized life—is was, you know, that it was better balanced. He he has this concept of the the human sensorium, and the the notion that you know, rather than just naming things that are visible and, and, and moving by habit, you actually uh, take in the world through all your senses, mm. and you're you're better able to do that in a balanced way. The less technological interference you introduce into that, mm. so you know I, us poor creatures now with all our static and all our <laughs> you know basically just 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 walking down a very thin aisle mm. that we've allowed ourselves to go down, directed mm. by science <laughs> media and and that sort of thing. So he he was he was very aware. Uh, without being romantic or nostalgic or sort of, you know, sort of can't go home again, hoo right. kind of approach. He yeah. was basically saying that's that's what we had and we've gained, you know, that there was things that we gained. We gained individuality. Uh, you know, there was benefits of reason and, and all the wonderful things we design are pretty pretty neat too. But, but what's, what's lost there is that, you know, the, the kind of connection and wonder and kind of the clean the cleanness of of living, and, right. and you know honestly he captures that in a phrase, and I was using it in the conversation piece. Um, we have there really is an end of nature that
2: right.
1: you know the, the, there's 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 now so much technology, at the, and the, and I, I think the other thing is he never he never hopes we can go back to the garden sort of thing. Mm. It, yeah, it's, the genie's out of the bottle. So at this point. Yeah. Right. Um, see I, you use the term responsibility absolutely taking responsibility for for all for, for this kind of uh, for the forces that are now a part of our lives mm. yeah i mean this also takes us I, I know we're, we're we're supposed to be sitting with geoengineering and thinking about the climate crisis but i was just looking at i mean much of what he ha- says ha- applies as well to ai and mm. it's uh um, its prevalence, its embeddedness in so so many areas of our life. Mm-hmm. You know, another really interesting McLuhan concept that makes full sense to all of us now has to do with that idea of figure and ground. So he, he points out, you know, to, to live a sane or to, to actually live, you can only see the the obvious things and you can't see all the context in the background and all the things that are at play,
2: mm.
1: all the related stuff. But, uh, you know, the, at the same time, he's saying if you want to wake up, mm-hmm. like, be woke so to speak mm-hmm. you got to look at not just the obvious figures the things that you do by habit but you know the right. things you've trained yourself to see instead look at all of the contextual uh energies and and things that are in the background that are, are shaping that that one thing that stands out in the foreground
0: yeah so, i mean
1: that's that to me that's one of his really powerful concepts and when he when he uses figure and ground it really helps it
0: it what comes to mind is not only the responsibility, but also it sounds like work. And that's something that I think we are generally hard work. Uh, we seem to be moving further and further away from because we come, we get more and more dependent on technology and things that make our lives easier. That existence uh, of coexistence of how we create something to make it better. But then that has, as, as you say, and as he said, it has an influence on how, uh, on how it, it affects our lives as well.
1: And how quickly it happens. I mean, a lot of what he had to say, and I remember his son, Eric, who was a, a Torontonian, mm. uh, you know, their, their concern, they, they, they saw the computer coming and they they were aware. Certainly Eric lived through that. But I guess what I'm getting at is that they began by observing how television, so that, you know, that's a lot of a lot of what they're saying is honestly, but like comments not so much about the digital environment and computers, but observed it. it Seeing TV as a medium,
2: mm.
1: but, you know, the, the the huge parallels there when you realize that people went from, you know, sort of lights out when it's dark or you go mm-hmm. for a walk outside and that was entertainment or you would go to a live action theater. Mm-hmm. Bringing that television to the home would have been, you know, a mega cultural jolt.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Just, just exactly what you're saying now. Now, eight year olds, six year olds have have their handheld computer.
2: Mm hmm
1: and um, and we're all just we're we're connected to each other and to information 24/7 so another you know giant leap for mankind but into what kind of abyss and he would be saying you know make sure you got your eyes open right not just not just to the screen but to everything right yeah
0: You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Jacqueline McLeod-Rogers, and I'm speaking with her. Well, we've been talking about Marsha McLuhan quite a bit, but uh, we're also talking about her article that she wrote in The Conversation. It is entitled, Why We Must Embrace Geoengineering and Other Technologies to Stop the Climate Crisis. And it's a pleasure to have her on the show. Now, um, Jacqueline had mentioned just prior to that about something she mentioned in the article and that is that Marshall McLuhan uh, had presented his view in a 1960s uh, article in Playboy of circling the planet with sensors and satellites had put the end to nature um, and he, he made other and you refer to that also in other ways about nature and that effect that our, our technologies have had on us. Uh, It's kind of like this two-way street. We just don't Mm -hmm. create these things; they then affect us in ways that we hadn't maybe anticipated. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, your um, article—you know—you're saying that scientists are saying that we that an engineered climate recovery must be taken serious. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, uh, I'm I'm, clearly I I work in communications, rhetoric, writing, so I I really. Emphasize. I'm not trying to advocate for a particular science
2: mm.
1: because that's not my specialty, and mm-hmm. I'd be in uh, deep water. <laughs> uh, what I'm what I'm suggesting is that that we need to start to look at. Uh, so, uh, I, I'm numbering myself in the public and saying that that all of us need to become more aware of possible options. And again, I mean, we've set it up with the McLuhan background. Mm -hmm. None of these these options are a panacea. You go there and that's going to solve it. Right. But part of this responsibility, it seems to me, is to start to think about um, if we invest in, let's say, uh, direct air capture, does it have potential, you know, seeing, listening, uh, starting to look at some of the geoengineering and terraforming solutions. Now the, the trouble is, I mean that the, the obvious critique is you, you know, that sort of, oh, you're a technological determinist and you're thinking that we've we've engineered our way into this or extracted our way into this and now we're going to engineer our way out of it. Like tech caused it, tech will fix it.
2: Mm.
1: But it, it's not, you know, a kind of lame lame hope that tech technology will just come in for the save and everybody goes merrily on their way. You know, there's, there, it, it's both things happening so that, you know, that it, it's not to say that you abandon the hard work of net zero emissions by 2050, mm. what we're all hearing about right now with the Glasgow meetings.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we keep with the, the aiming for the net zero emissions. We'd keep to that target of a, a 1.5 degree warming by 2050, but, you know, that. Uh, you read something like the water will come we're we're all you know we we don't need to read. we're all experiencing firsthand smoke mm-hmm. in the air from the wildfires, yeah uh, you know the, the terrible it doesn't seem which no matter which coast you go to, the waters are uh, not just rising but um swirling and 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 the rains and the the snows mm-hmm. none of it seem as, as regulated. so the warming is actually happening more quickly than I guess any of us imagined, so. it it seems like instead of just hoping that politicians will fix this and we will keep to a kind of schedule for being better people and and, and shutting things down and and settling back, you know, why not have the two things? And to me, it's hypocritical. I was mentioning in the article, get up in the morning, you take an aspirin if you have a headache. Mm. We can't can't number on our hands. Everything we do is technologically assisted in our lives. So, again, I'm not saying we should all race over for technology for the same design will make this problem better. But I think it is also naive to pretend that we don't live entirely technologized lives already. Mm. Yeah. So that, uh, that seeing how direct air capture might be an option, or I was saying that even the scarier one, the one that used to be the stuff of sci-fi, where you were solar engineering so that you were um, in some, some form of cloud cover to lower the earth temperatures. And, you know, even saying these things, I realized that scientists would, will say, but you don't understand And, and I, I'm saying, I'll give you that. My, what I'm advocating here is, is to, to, as you were saying, do the hard work of trying to begin to understand what are the possible gains? Mm. Yeah. Should we be supporting research and development? I mean, even when I look at the comments, my article drew in so many people saying things like, oh, "Well, direct air carbon capture costs so much. It's ridiculous. Mm. You know, that orca plant up in Iceland, right. it's minuscule with its it, what it's providing and it's costing billions. Well, all of those things are true. But, you know, we would have said that about electric cars. Sure. 20 years ago. Right. So, yeah, we're, we're hoping there's some trajectory where the things get better, faster, cheaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, of course um you now the the you mentioned uh, the orca plant you there's an there's another um technology that you mentioned in your article as well uh the solar punk
1: yeah yeah i, I um they were so helpful with me at the conversation because again as a, as a non scientist i had I had, <laughs> I had sifted through a number of options there's a lot of really interesting engineered solutions terraform solutions some of them super interesting ones have to do with mm-hmm. Uh, controlling rising waters around shorefronts mm. like blue carbon capture. But I decided to just emphasize the two that are in some ways extreme and, and really involve technologies that are in development mm. to say, you know, we can't just say that's going to be the panacea that there's the answer, but we probably should see, you know, with with, with scientists and humanists together, if if these technologies if they have a positive trajectory. Okay, the the one that's already occurring in terms of the solar
2: mm-hmm.
1: engineering, they've apparently run a few pilots of it in off the Australian coast mm. where they're spraying seawater into the air and that's keeping some of the the direct sun rays oh, off yeah. the corals. Mm. And and they've actually had two pilots of this apparently run already. Right. And of course there's more extreme when you get into the solar punk, it's more extreme and there, are you know, extreme or, or more extreme interventions have the possibility of um, introducing more trouble. If, you know, for example, if you start to muck about with a, with the warming and the climate and the clouds in a particular area, some will come in and say that, you know, who's to say then that that technology can't be weaponized. Mm. You know, so it's, it's, of course, there's dangers with right. all of these. Yes. All of these technologies.
0: Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, for sure. We may have to rely on technology to some degree to help us with this situation. And that's a given. But the other, I th- the other thing I'm also hearing is that let's just, one, just assume that that's going to be the answer and that. We aren't going to have to do anything on our end, meaning we ourselves, meaning as individuals, mm-hmm. as countries, as a planet and as a human race to say, OK, we have to make some changes. We have to make take some responsibility here. What
1: McLuhan was looking at, and I just I just put out a book with Lexington called The, the Programmed Environment. So as uh, McLuhan's technosensorium sitting coming to our senses in a program environment, what he was getting at there is since we we. we we don't really, or we've we're out of whack, and we've allowed for at this point, if we're talking about the, the material or the physical environment, it's lost its its balance. So, some form of positive programming, um, to restore what has kind of been been set awry. And where I'm trying to tend back to it, it's it's. Like nothing is new. And I'm thinking of the figure, a friend of his or a colleague of his was called Jorgi Kepes, mm. a Hungarian immigrant who who came over uh, during World War II as so many Jewish people ha- had to do. And he ended up giving up his, his pursuit of art for uh, what is what he's sometimes been criticized for becoming the man in the gray flannel suit working at MIT. But his point was, you had to keep an eye on down the halls. The scientists had the nuclear bomb. Mm. So, in some ways, I mean, it, it 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 shifted the worry and the concern. But then, you know, there, that's the question. If you don't, if, if, if and now I'm coming back to these geoengineered solutions. If we just hold our nose or ignore them or say they're too dangerous or we don't want them, um, so, some degree of investment, and involvement, and oversight. Publics, humanist artists—it it, it becomes a—it's—it's it's an issue for all of us to be invested in. Mm. So that was that's that's a parallel that always strikes me. You know, even if you hear climate people feeling like it's never been as bad as this, or it's never been so extreme, where technology has this imminent disaster, that actually is in some ways a strong parallel. Mm. When they knew that the nuclear bomb was down the hall. Right. Getting bigger and bolder right. and so destructive in its capacity, mm. but you know again like I, I made my points so I am making it, but just ignoring it mm-hmm. um, you know, or pretending we'll do something else right. it, it 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 doesn't go away right, and it it, it maintains that kind of danger
0: right. Jacqueline, we'll have to leave it there, but it's been fascinating speaking with you. And I want to thank you uh, greatly for taking the time to join us on the show to talk about the article you authored in the conversation, Why We Must Embrace Geoengineering and Other Technologies to Stop the Climate Crisis. And you can find it, theconversation.ca. Uh, and uh, Jacqueline, been a pleasure speaking with you. I, I, I want to thank you once again for joining us.
1: Thanks so much, David.
0: All right, you take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jacqueline McLeod Rogers is a professor of rhetoric, writing and communications at the University of Winnipeg. She's been my guest on this part of the show, as I say, talking about her article, Why We Must Embrace Geoengineering and Other Technologies to Stop the Climate Crisis. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with more Moment of Truth right after these messages.
1: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.
0: Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It is a pleasure to welcome to the show, Paige Bennett. She is an affiliate member of Critical Geographies Research and the Collaboratory at the University of Victoria. She's here to talk about an article she co-authored in The Conversation. It is entitled Popular Climate Change Documentaries, Often privilege wealthier countries and offer unbalanced coverage. She uh, co-authored this article in The Conversation with uh, Reuben Rose at Redwood. Unfortunately, he was not able to join us, but it's a pleasure to have Paige with us here on the show to talk about the article. Paige, welcome.
3: Thanks so much for having me, David.
0: So, can I ask you what made you think of wanting to write this article?
3: Yeah, absolutely. This is actually kind of Small piece of my master's thesis, which focuses on these 10 films with a lot more in-depth analysis. But I actually started thinking about climate change media and how different regions are portrayed differently within it. Um, In my undergraduate degree, when I had the opportunity to work in the Northwest Territories doing research on landscape change due to climate change there, and I just started seeing these huge disparities in how The Arctic, in particular, and in particular, the Canadian Arctic, is shown in media. It's always these images of exclusively ice. It's very rarely shown that people live there. It's often, if there is any kind of habitation, it's a polar bear. Mm. Whereas the reality is, these regions are very rich cultural landscapes that people have lived in since time immemorial. But that's not shown in popular media. So I started thinking about, well, why. When we look at climate change VR, some places shown as kind of these caricatures of what they really are, Mm. whereas other regions get really in-depth coverage um, that cause you to feel concern for them because of what they are. In reality versus what they're shown as in the media. So it kind of started from there and then I wanted to zoom out and look at how that trend might exist in other parts of the world as well.
0: Mm. Now of course uh, it's an interesting time for your article and to be talking about this of course because of uh, COP26 that is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you seen and been paying attention to as this uh, climate co- conference has been happening?
3: Um, I think what's been most interesting for me is how COP26 in particular has really highlighted those inequities that I mentioned in the article and that climate activists from around the world have been pointing out mm. for a very long time. Um, first of all, it was extremely difficult for delegates from countries in the global South to even access the conference this year because um, the UK has fairly strict um, vaccination rules mm. around, um, what's the term I'm looking for? isolation periods when you Mm -hmm. get there so people from certain countries are having to stay in quarantine for 10 days whereas someone coming from Canada didn't have to at all for Mm -hmm. example Um, eventually the UK waived that and actually had to provide a vaccination program for delegates from certain countries just so they could actually come to the conference so I think that this conference even before it began really emphasized global inequality um So I think that's really interesting. Um, I've been paying attention to, quite frankly, a lot of what's been happening outside of the actual negotiations more than inside. I think there's been some really powerful um, protests and speakers Mm -hmm. um, who are not necessarily part of the parties negotiating, but have brought an important platform to point out who is at the conference and who has not been able to join in terms of actual policies going on there. um, I have been interested to see I think it was on Friday, the announcement that United States, Canada, and 18 other countries committed to stop public financing mm-hmm. for fossil fuel projects abroad by mm-hmm. the end of the year. Right. Um, I think it's important to note that Canada still does a lot of funding for that at home and recently bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But that does give me hope that that's a fairly, depending, I mean, there's a lot of potential for that to be weakened, but that is a fairly powerful Agreement to come out of this, so I'm hoping that we'll see more of that this week as it wraps up.
0: Right. Um, now, when it comes to things like climate, the climate crisis, or around things like this conference, uh, COP26 conference, and the way media coverage handles these things, do you think there should be a, a way, a different way that they approach it? Because it seems like what this article is saying, and and it's true, I guess, of all media. They are, they are approaching this the same way they always have, the way they deal with any story. And so, the way the narrative is played out, the way the story is told, do you get a sense that there should be, there sh- that this should be approached differently?
3: Meaning, um, coverage of climate change in general, or this specific event, or kind of both?
0: Well, kind of both, but I guess because it. it because what I'm, what I'm also is, is rolling around in the back of my head here that I'm trying to make sense of is, is I guess, okay, so how do we, if the media coverage um, is, you know, has a, has a role in shaping the narrative, right, of what we see, mm-hmm. what we hear, Um do does the media need need itself to and maybe you can't answer this to look at itself and say okay how are we doing the best job we can in terms of covering this um, to get the message out that really needs to be got you know gotten out to the public.
3: I think definitely, and there's entire fields of study on environmental communication and climate communication and media studies in general that do look at how um, media coverage not only. Um, describes what's happening, but actually kind of produces certain realities Mm. to come into being. Um, And by legitimizing a certain narrative or holding up a certain kind of expert, it means that people are more likely to accept that expertise is the only kind Mm. of valid knowledge and it's this kind of ongoing cycle. So I think it's very much important. And I think in the last couple of years, we have seen that kind of reckoning going on, Mm. not only within media, but also Um, within academia, within the climate activist space as well. There's long been critiques of the fact that environmental groups that are well-known and well-funded are largely white and often don't address issues such as indigenous land sovereignty very well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, because of that demographic. Um, We've seen critiques of the large number of, um, I mean, I guess to be blunt, white men who, largely occupy spaces of power within universities within the media field and a concerted effort in recent years. Um, largely I think due to the popularity and growing, um, urgency of the Black Lives Matter movement, we've Mm -hmm. seen a concerted effort by a lot of groups to increase diversity. Um, I hopefully in a meaningful way within. um, yeah, within who they include in those spaces Mm -hmm. and who they include in those spaces safely. Um, And so, I think there is this reckoning going on. And within that, I think there is inherently going to be a shift Mm -hmm. in how these things are covered by opening up those spaces to people who should have been in there in the first place and often have been creating those spaces outside of that kind of power vacuum for a long time. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Um, So, I think that will that is slowly starting to happen as it becomes kind of more apparent to more mainstream channels, I think.
0: Mm. Uh, speaking of uh, who should have been there to begin with, it, it, it sort of ties in directly with uh, your article and uh, what we were talking about in terms of the uh, the image by the Associated Press uh, mm-hmm. that cropped the image of the Ugandan climate activist, uh, Vanessa Nakate, I believe her name is. And yes. it makes you wonder, why would they even do that to begin with? You know, it, it just doesn't make any sense, uh, you know? At least from from my thinking. <laughs> but anyway,
3: yeah, it is really interesting, and there was a lot of backpedaling by the Associated Press. But why that happened, and a lot of covering by people saying, "Well, it's because the building behind her made the framing of the photo awkward." So it's really not clear. But I think the most frustrating part of that is now that is now when you Google Vanessa Nakate, a lot of times articles about that event come up rather mm. than about the fact that she's this incredible activist and has been for a long time. Mm. So in a way, when she was cropped out of that photo, she was also kind of pigeonholed into only existing within that photo in a lot of the mainstream media and has done so much important work before that photo happened and continues to after. So I think it's just, it's an incredibly frustrating event, but it really was a watershed moment for a lot of people to take a look at their own organizations and who they were sending to events like the World Economic Forum and really starting to think hard about this, which right. again should have been happening a long time ago and shouldn't have require an event like that to occur.
0: You said that you see some of these things starting to change a bit but in your in your time looking at this and examining these things, uh, did you were there any surprises for you that were really glaring uh, for you as you started to look at this or any pleasant surprises that came?
3: I think a couple of the films that I looked at, because my analysis looked at 10 films Mm -hmm. across 15 years, and I think there was a fairly clear progression in those films' representation.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. I mean, a lot of them still, even some of the more recent films were still had problems within them, which I discuss in my thesis and this article, but some of the more recent films in particular, this changes everything do so much better of a job than some of the really early films in terms of, um, highlighting diverse voices and telling stories about vulnerable regions that don't just fit into these stereotypes. So that was really refreshing to see. Mm -hmm. Um, and it definitely was clear, over that time period that there was some change occurring.
0: Mm, right. Right. That's good to hear. Very good to hear. You know, um, as I think about about this and about how you, you know, it, it's framed in terms of who's telling the stories, uh, who are the nations that are represented uh, and, and, and how that message is being, uh, you know, brought to the public. Um, you know, the idea that if we are, if some of these documentaries, for the most part, are ignoring some of the countries that are mostly being affected, uh, we, we've already seen through other uh, historical uh, situations where, for instance, if these countries continue to be affected by cli- by the climate crisis, if there's a lack of food, if they're if they're flooded, if there's droughts, all those kind of things, and people start you know, migrating to other parts of the world because they need to, they can't survive. That of course is going to affect other nations. Um, and, and so we should be looking at all of this stuff.
3: Yeah. And that's something I talked about in um, my thesis is this, uh, is how climate refugees and climate migration are framed. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is really interesting is that it is, it's often framed in terms of you should care about this problem because people are going to come to the country that you live in and mm. that will affect you. Mm. And so it becomes, it completely reframes a conversation about securitizing of borders um, right. and addressing the problem after it has happened instead of addressing that root issue of a climate crisis and addressing what is causing those droughts or that sea level rise right. um, or destabilization in the region. So I think by framing things around yeah, borders and movement, which obviously are already happening and are going to continue happening because a certain level of warming is not reversible regardless of what action is taken, it reframes the issue in a way that I think dehumanizes people who are climate refugees and doesn't mm-hmm. require us to address the root issue.
0: Right. 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 You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Paige Bennett. She's an affiliate member of the Critical Geographies Research and Collaboratory at the University of Victoria, and we're talking to her about an article in the conversation that she co-authored with Reuben Ross Redwood. It is entitled, Popular Climate Change Documentaries Often Privilege Wealthier Countries and Offer Unbalanced Coverage. Now, you, uh, Paige, looked at uh, a number of films as you just mentioned over uh, a number of years Uh, you did see some very uh, similar things that you point out uh, in this uh, mostly that many of the the people either narrating or that were seen as as uh, experts throughout these films are one white and uh, either American or British Um, is there what else would you like to add to that
3: Um, that was really the most shocking takeaway for me was just how stark Mm. the divide was. Mm. Um, within the 10 films I looked at, there were 300 speak, 301 speakers. Um, 76% of those were male and 59% were white. Mm. Um, and of people who were portrayed as being, um, objective experts on the subject of climate change, I believe it was 76% of them were white men. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I guess what the important context to think about with that is that, first of all, the issue of representation, who people who are watching these films are seeing portrayed as experts and it kind of pigeonholes this very limited idea of what an expert can be, but also something I'd like to add to that is I think it also creates this limited idea of what expertise or knowledge or science is, because if we're only shown people who have PhDs or come from Western universities and have this specific type of knowledge, which of course is extremely important and very valid, um, it really limits the scope of our understanding of who can be an expert on climate change mm. um, because traditional knowledge, local knowledge, land um, knowledge gained from being on the land in an Indigenous territory, for example, those are all important forms of knowledge that we need to recognize and also better integrate into climate policy and climate science. And so I think it's not only the issue of look pointing and saying, well, there are 228 white men. It's a question of, well, what, what does that represent more broadly and who and what is being left out of that conversation as a result?
0: Right. And, and, and again, it comes back to, I guess, focusing on the, the, the media uh, or the medium itself in terms of uh, how and why it is portraying, it that way Uh, in terms of, I guess, who are they trying to influence? Who are they trying to uh, gain or engage as an audience? And what message are they trying to sell? Uh, Does that make some sense to you?
3: Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's necessarily an intentional choice. Mm. Um, I do think I mentioned elsewhere, the narrators of these films all have kind of the same, Um, set up where there's one central narrator who travels to all these different parts of the world and interviews people. And in nine of the 10 films, these narrators are white. In nine of the 10 films, they were male. I think the choice of using someone with star power, like Leonardo DiCaprio, which Mm -hmm. two of the films do, or someone well-known like Al Gore, I think that's intentional because it draws people. Sure. the subject. Um, But I don't think it's necessarily an intentional choice that these filmmakers are going out and only interviewing a certain demographic. I think Mm. it's more a symptom of a larger problem um, that exists, um, as I mentioned, within the academic world, the scientific world, the climate activism world. Um, Just as an example, right now the UN has an explicit goal to reach a gender balance in all of its Mm. international climate decision-making bodies, Mm. um, but only two of the 15 of those groups have over 50% female representation. Mm. So, I think I don't think it's an intentional decision by these films to try and influence a specific demographic by only featuring a specific demographic, mm. but I think it's a symptom of a larger problem that exists across many spaces in our society around about who is being excluded from spaces and conversations.
0: Yeah, which takes me to the other thing that I sort of got out of the article and I mentioned this to you, and that is that it it seems very, or feels very much like, whether it's conscious or not, and and may not be, just as you pointed out, the idea that, uh, you know, history is written by the the winners and uh, this feels very much like that in some ways.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think, because there is quite a bit of literature out there both academic and not about um the whiteness of climate mm. of climate science mm. and i'm trying to think of the author who i'm paraphrasing but they they basically say that the countries that have caused these historical emissions that have caused the climate crisis are also in control of the decision-making bodies that are supposed to mm. limit those emissions and then are also therefore given the platform and power to craft the narrative about how that has to happen. So it's kind of this multi-layered system of oppression and colonialism often that's ongoing.
2: Um,
3: So I think that what you're saying is absolutely true and it's just a symptom of a larger power imbalance that does exist in the world that um, as I mentioned about how, access to vaccines and therefore access to cop 26 at all it's another really good example of that happening and yeah i think it's a and I, obviously i'm nowhere near the first person to say this but this is a huge issue that is mm. preventing climate justice from right. being achieved
0: okay climate justice uh it, it, i was just going to ask you that and i guess that's maybe one of the things that might be a symptom of of what we are by the fact that we we are dealing with this these discrepancies in in screen time and the messages of who is delivering them uh, about what we are losing um, you know from from that uh, from that kind of a presentation
3: I think we're losing a lot. I think it does a huge disservice um, to the world of climate and the world of activism and the world in general to create to portray such a unique dimensional idea of what legitimate scientific knowledge is, who is addressing these issues, who is on the front lines. I think it does a massive disservice to the fact that it is by and far Indigenous, Black, and people of color who are being impacted by these issues, but also are the ones on the front lines fighting back, organizing, and creating real change. Um, And I think that the two films that do a fairly good job of showing that this changes everything. And Mm -hmm. this one's a really long one, how to let go of the world and love all the things the climate can't change. (laughs) These two films do a fairly good job of showing those communities and really celebrating them. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just think it's extremely frustrating and sad that the people who are creating real change are not being celebrated and spotlighted the way they should be Mm. in mainstream media.
0: Right. And as you say, uh, they do a good job of of challenging those stereotypes.
3: Yeah, they do. Um, In particular, in how to let go, there's a long sequence on this group called the Pacific climate warriors Mm -hmm. um, who are from a coalition coalition of South Pacific nations who are being um, impacted by sea level rise. And Mm. They not only show the reality that these communities are being impacted and people are being affected every day, but they also show that it's not just that's not the only thing that you see from these communities. You also see their incredible organizing skills. Um, they're very, very badass. I don't know if I want to say that. They're very, <laughs> they're very impressive um, actions. They in the film they stop mm-hmm. a massive coal barge coming out of an Australian port. Mm. Um, but they also, I think what's so interesting about this film is often when, and this is kind of getting into the nitty gritty, but I think it's really interesting. A lot of, um, images you see of small island nations, it's always kind of the same image of a flooded beachfront mm. and you just, you don't really have any idea of what day-to-day life in those communities are like, cause it's just this one single snapshot, but right. this film shows, um, one person traveling between the islands by a ferry, you actually get to see his house, right. you see his source. Um, I think he has, I'm trying to think of other examples, but it actually gives you an idea of that. There are lively communities and life goes on every day in these places. And it's not just this constant tragedy, mm. the way you see in other films. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so valuable to see.
0: Hmm. Right, and, and f- so for people that are interested in uh, possibly, you know, looking at these films, do you know where they can find them?
3: Um, I believe "How to Let Go" everything was a more limited release. Okay. So I'm not sure where you can watch it. Okay. Um, I think it's the kind of film that you can potentially contact the filmmaker for a copy, but okay. I'm not 100 percent sure about that. And right. I believe, um, this changes everything. Is I think it's on American Netflix, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. I believe it's available for purchase okay. through Amazon, but I'm not quite sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, and people have the titles and they can certainly Google them and uh, try to find out what they can about them and see if they can uh, access them uh, locally uh, from wherever they might be. And uh, that's wonderful. The, now we're getting close to the end of our time, but, you know, I want to come back to something you mentioned uh, about, I guess it had to do with your, your thesis and about, you um, how you were looking at uh, people in areas that are going to be more affected by climate by the climate crisis like whether it be drought or flooding or whatever it might be and have to relocate Um, that you said you know these people are going to be affecting your your country or perhaps where you live because they're going to be moving to other areas and you know the other thing that I think we have seen and we've heard about is that scientists are saying, and they're very surprised sometimes by that, how quickly uh, things seems to be happening from a climate perspective. Uh, They're happening faster and they're more, they're accelerating at a greater rate than they were anticipating. And so it seems like that timeline is speeding up. So, and the reason I say that is because I'm, I'm thinking that we all seem to think we have more time than we actually have in terms of this climate crisis.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think things are happening more quickly than we expect. And I think for a lot of people, um, the climate crisis is or has been something fairly abstract or that happens to, you know, people over there, but Mm -hmm. it's not going to impact me. Mm -hmm. But I think that this summer in particular, particularly in Canada and the United States was a wake up call for that. I was in british columbia during the heat dome it was 37 degrees inside yep. my apartment for yep. two days mm-hmm. you know people are starting to see that this is happening quickly and that not only could it happen to them but that it is happening to other people already and it has been for a long time yeah. and that their humanity matters just as much as ours does and we need to act fast prevent anything worse happening to all of humanity i believe and it's frustrating and disappointing that mm. people have to experience things firsthand in order to have that realization. But I think that is kind of often an inherent part of the human condition. So I really hope things don't have to get worse before they can get better. Right. But things are certainly happening faster than a lot of us anticipated.
0: Yeah. And the other thing I remember hearing about is that Canada, the temperature is actually rising much faster than in other countries for whatever reason. Yeah.
3: I know that's true for parts of um, northern parts of Canada. Right. I I can't speak to that about the rest of Canada, I'm not sure, but I know no. that Arctic regions of Canada and all over the world, there is a polar amplification and it is he- um, heating one to three degrees faster than right. southern regions, but and, I'm not sure about the rest of Canada.
0: Yeah. But. Mm-hmm. Page, hey, it's been uh, fascinating speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and talk to us about your article entitled Popular Climate Change Documentaries Often Privileged Wealthier Countries and Offer Unbalanced Coverage. People can find that by going to theconversation.ca and uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show to, to talk about this.
3: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: And that is Paige Bennett. She is a Bachelor of Arts and Master of Arts in Geography at the University of Victoria, and she is currently an affiliate member of the Critical Geographies Research Collaboratory at the University of Victoria. Her research interests focus on the intersection of environmental communication, critical geographies, and climate justice. And that is your show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. Thank you for listening to Moment of Truth, and we will see you again tomorrow.